right. Good morning. Here we are. We're back in Acts chapter 2. We're going to finish Peter's sermon today that we began last week. It is such great stuff. So I can't do it justice, but I'm going to do my best, okay? So today we're picking up where we left off in the first Christian sermon after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, Peter's great Pentecost sermon. So the Spirit has come. The disciples have each received the Spirit and were speaking in languages they had never heard. The crowd was amazed and perplexed. Those are the two words that are actually used in the text there. And they ask in verse 12, what does this mean? And a few in the crowd mocked the apostles and the people that were speaking. Uh, They said they are full of sweet wine. So Peter, our hero, he uh, starts his response and in verse 15 of chapter 2 he says it's too early to be drunk. So that's not what's going on. And he said this is the beginning of the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy in the Old Testament, this little book of Joel. The Spirit of God has come down And that's what accounts for what you're seeing and hearing. That's in verses 17 through 21. And then in verse 21 he says, this is a day to proclaim salvation. So um, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that gives you the theme of the sermon. It's it's a salvation sermon. And that's where we left off, this, this ringing call to be saved, quoting from Joel. So this is a gospel sermon and any gospel presentation has to address sin in some way because repentance is a key component of saving faith. Uh, Jesus cannot just be presented as your friend in a gospel sermon. He is a king uh, but he's even more than that. He is a savior and he cannot be a king or a friend with you without you accepting your need to have him as your savior and embracing him as that. So we'll see here, Peter at Pentecost, can he's in a good situation because in talking about sin, he has some real very specific serious sins, horrible sins to lay upon the people, which is the rejection and the murder of God's son. So that's huge. So verse 22 uh, tells us who he's speaking to. He says, men of Israel, that's his audience. But always when the gospel is proclaimed, we have to address sin. That's a key thing to do. Preachers often labor to convince people that they are sinners because most people measure themselves by other people and so when they measure themselves by other people their pride makes them think they're better than everybody else so um, by comparison they think well I'll be okay when I face God that most people think that way in some form sometimes you have to break through that complacency with God's standard in fact that's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount he hammered home what the law of God really meant and any honest person that measures himself by the Sermon on the Mount is going to come up very short of a standard of righteousness that Jesus presents. So I think most people down inside they know their moral failures. So I often talk to people as if I know that they know it. I I treat them like they do know that they're sinners and I just tell them what their moral failure means because I think people really do know usually and it means they have offended God that's the thing that has to be brought to the table and that's where unbelievers drop the ball even if they are aware of their own sinfulness they don't know what a good God is like they dismiss how holy he is how perfect he is and by what standard he measures creatures like us who were made in his image to be holy like him 
and we are responsible to him and most people won't deal with that or refuse to understand that or can't. Interestingly Paul says God will even judge the uh, ignorant by their own moral standard which everybody also fails to measure up to as well. When I think about what I uh, what I react to against what other people do to me and I think that's wrong if I've ever done it God might judge me by that standard if I've never heard the gospel or the law of God or anything like that and you know what we still come out really bad I was one of those people I mean I knew the Bible a little bit but before I became a Christian I couldn't live my own moral standard and that d made me ready nobody had to tell me I was a sinner I knew that but Peter knows exactly how to address them and uh, the sermon is brilliant. It's a masterful presentation of Jesus Christ. A couple other things you might want to notice as we go. I'm not going to emphasize them but this sermon is deeply Trinitarian. Father, Son, and Spirit all through it. It points to their problem and to God's solution. That's how Peter works it. That's a classic gospel structure. So Peter works brilliantly off basically a four point outline. I mean it's not boom, boom, boom but it works like this. First he talks about their experience, the, the people he's talking to, their experience of Jesus actually, which is unique about this sermon because these people all were around when Jesus was ministering so they knew a lot about him. He also then answers possible objections to what he's proclaiming to them and then he points to Old Testament prophecy from David. That's the third thing he does and then finally he brings forth the bombshell the eyewitnesses of the apostles who saw the risen Christ. And he deals with objections related to that as well. So Luke is making sure the book of Acts gets off to a really strong start by quoting a lot of Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 2. So we're right into it. So let's take his first point that I mentioned, their experience with Jesus. Jesus worked miracles. Period. That's verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. It's always a good method to use what people already know to be true and that's what he's doing here. So uh, Jesus did miracles, works of power that were well known and witnessed by many people. No ancient source says that Jesus did not work miracles, that it was a sham or a trick or something like that. Anybody that had any knowledge of him, that was the one thing that everybody knew. Because that was the thing, just like today, people are more interested in miracles than truth. So um, people get excited about that. The words about things like that get around. People know. Jesus did miracles that were known by everyone. So his enemies didn't even deny them. What did they do? They just ascribed them to Satan. That's how they handled it. So the Pharisees just said, well, yeah, they're miracles, but they're satanic miracles. He's working for the devil. In fact, when Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son, just talking about how widespread these uh, miracles gave, she was, he, he was dead. Jesus raised him from the dead right in front of a large crowd of people. So a lot of people saw that. They were on their way to the funeral. And in Luke 7, 16, it says, fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. So there you are. So Peter's preaching this sermon in Judea and all of these people that were from that area would have heard about it. And the people even that came in from out of town probably got a pretty good a uh, bit of news about what was going on recently. Jesus was crucified and resurrected just weeks before, about six weeks before. So 
Um, that, would, that would have been the noise. And again, everybody would have heard what a wonder worker he was. So that was well known about Jesus as well as many other things. Here's another one from Luke chapter 11 verse 14. It says, he was casting out a demon and it was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? They will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Pretty powerful. They knew that he did miracles. And Peter uses a full range of expressions here in verse 22. Miracles, wonders, and signs. Miracles, dunamisi, uh, works of great power, wonders, terasi is the Greek word there, acts that produce wonder. That's exactly what that word means. People respond with wonder. Our word terrific actually comes from the root of that word. Signs, he also says, semeois, deeds which are proof of claims, signs, clear evidences. So starting with what they know, he puts them on the defense. They have to explain a way why Jesus should not be considered the Messiah based on the works that he did. So one typical objection might be, one argument that might be made from Israel's spiritual leaders were things like this. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So since Jesus was crucified, he had to have been a cursed person. Peter answers that with his second main point, which is really in verse 23 there. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. It's true he was crucified, but how did he get on that cross? Well, they did it. The leaders of Israel did it, and the people all stood around and cried for Barabbas and supported that. So Peter's saying, he was murdered by you. You're responsible. You, you had an obligation to respond to him properly and you haven't done it. So yes, um, but all of that was in God's predetermined plan. That might be what they say. Well, yeah, but this was from God's plan from the ages, right? Well, amazingly, God's plan can use the inexcusable evil of men. So by Peter saying that this was God's plan doesn't change their guilt. God can use sin to further his plan and that's exactly what he did here. So God was accomplishing salvation for his people by the act of people wickedly, unjustly murdering the son of God. So Peter says you used godless men, the Romans, Romans for heaven's sake, and put him to death. So that is the accusation. So, But here's God's verdict on this. And that's really important. Verse 24. But God raised him up again. Putting an end to the agony of death. Since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Why would it be impossible for Jesus to stay dead? Because he had no sin. And the power of sin is the law. And he never broke the law. 
He, he didn't deserve to die. Despite the injustice done to him in being given the sentence of death, God reversed that sentence by raising him from the dead. Wow, think about that. So God confirmed his innocence by raising him from the dead. So Peter's saying, what you did to him was a crime greater than all other crimes ever committed. And if Jesus had stayed in the tomb, we could never know if you were right or he was right. But now we know. Many injustices are going to be sorted out on judgment day. But this was God's son. This was the holy one, the promised one, the savior and the king. He was innocent and God proved it by raising him from the dead. So in fact, now Peter shifts to his third sort of point here, which is Old Testament prophecy. In fact, he says, a thousand years ago, God indicated by a prophetic word from King David that this is exactly how God would glorify the Messiah. Verse 24, Peter says it was impossible for him to be held in its power so death could not hold Jesus. And he follows that statement by quoting Psalm 16. Look at verse 25. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover my flesh also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, David wrote this psalm, and he used the first person describing himself, it seems like, as dead but not permitted to decay. Is that what happened with David? No. No, you might think, well, you know, this is poetry and maybe he's using these ideas sort of metaphorically like that. And I would have said that about Psalm 22 too, where David describes in perfect detail a crucifixion from the first person point of view, from the viewpoint of the one being crucified as though it was happening to him. So remember, we talked about that quite a bit a few months ago. David not only perfectly describes a crucifixion in Psalm 22, he describes a very specific crucifixion that of Jesus a thousand years before it happened when crucifixion wasn't even something people did in David's time. So it was not metaphorical. It was prophecy. Psalm 22 was prophecy and that's exactly what's going on in Psalm 16. Messiah was David's child, a a descendant of his. David was the first in a line of kings that would lead to him, lead to Jesus Christ. Messiah would carry his DNA. Messiah would be his descendant. And the promise of an eternal kingship especially was David's. It would have no end, that kingdom. God promised that to David. So the Holy Spirit used David to reveal prophetic truth about the Messiah. You might remember at the end of Luke's gospel, the resurrected Jesus is talking to the apostles about the Old Testament prophecy. And he said, this is at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus said, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he specifically mentions the Psalms, which are poetry. You don't only find prophetic truth in the prophets, Isaiah, Zechariah, Joel. 
But you find that in the Psalms as well. And the rabbis understood that many Psalms contained messianic truth. In fact, that is a, we have clues in Psalm 16 even that this is a messianic Psalm. And that's what the rabbis believed because of the use of the word holy one. That is a messianic title, generally speaking. It's very frequently used in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And the rabbis believe this passage in Psalm 16 was messianic for this reason. So Peter is using it. What do we learn about the Holy One? God will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He will not decay. So this isn't a stretch. Uh, Peter's not pulling anything sneaky here. He's just showing his audience how this psalm fits exactly what happened. Look at verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Did David decay? Yes, he did. Verse 30, and so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. That's exactly right. So Peter's saying, you can't say David wrote of his own experience because I can show you where his tomb is. So that's obviously not something that was ever true of David. David's writing of his descendant, the Holy One. He's identified as the Holy One, and that's the Messiah. So it's a very persuasive argument to the Jewish mind. Well, it persuades me too. It's actually a very powerful argument. So now the bombshell, Peter's fourth point, verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Jesus is risen. We have all seen him, and we know it to be true. So, let me just back up a little bit and sort of sum up the message so far. Peter says, the tongue's miracle is the promised spirit that is coming in the latter days of the Messiah. Jesus was a miracle worker for good, and you murdered him, and as David foretold, God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of the resurrection. So that's really been the flow of this sermon he's giving. That's what you were seeing and hearing, he's telling them. God is working today in your midst, he's saying. Now, Peter anticipates the obvious question, and I think it's a question we might ask if we were there. Well, where is Jesus? I mean, if he's risen, where is he? Where is his kingdom? It's a great question. Peter points them to Psalm 110 before they even ask it. Verse 33, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the fathers the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it is not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There it is. These are the words of the Lord God in Psalm 110. Christ is ascended just the way that Psalm requires him to be. He's ascended and, and so today what you're seeing, he's telling this crowd, you're seeing his spirit which he has sent because he's ascended. And that's where the rushing sound of wind came from that drew you to the apostles and that's why we speak this language that we've never known because of this miracle of the spirit coming. 
Now this is, has even more weight because all of the rabbis believe that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm. It's not just have a messianic portion. The whole psalm is a messianic psalm. It is a messianic psalm through and through. There's nothing mysterious about it. It's as plain as can be. So they all knew that. They all acknowledged that. All the teachers of Israel would have said Psalm 110, that's about the Messiah. So you didn't have to find something in there. That's what it's about. So Jesus took those words. Remember, he used that psalm too. He took those words, the Lord said to my Lord, or Yahweh, the Lord said to my, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So God is speaking to David's Lord, who is the Messiah. But since the Messiah will be a child of David, Jesus asked this killer question after they were grilling him with all these questions. He asked this question in Matthew 22 and that made them stop asking questions. He said, if David calls him Lord, then how is he his son? And he doesn't explain it. He just leaves that there and they stop asking questions. Why? Because the implications of that question are profound. How could David be calling the Messiah Lord if David is his father? Because in that culture, the father is always superior no matter what in standing, right? So how can he call his son Lord if he's the father? Jesus just leaves the question there. Maybe in some important way, this time the son is the greater than the father. Hmm. Just who is Jesus anyway? Well, Peter's going to tell him right now. So at this point, he's been using Psalm 110 to show that Jesus' absence currently is thoroughly scriptural and necessary because that's what that psalm teaches. God's going to have the Messiah sit at his right hand until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. And that's where Jesus is. He's at the right hand of the Father right now. The work of the Spirit is what's happening on earth while God the Father makes the enemies of Christ a footstool for his feet. So he's sitting at the Father's right hand where he should be. Okay, then verse 36. Therefore, and when he says therefore, Therefore is what you say when your arguments are all done and you're going to explain what it all means. So here he goes. Therefore, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So know this for certain. Jesus is Lord and he is the Messiah. That's what he says. And you crucified him. So he started talking about guilt back in verse 22 and now he's returning to that theme. You crucified him. There's no salvation without repentance. And only by speaking to people about their sin can they come to a place where their heart is burdened with true guilt. And the response of many people was only what the Holy Spirit could have brought about because now the Spirit is moving on the hearts of the crowd. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, that God had made Jesus both Lord and Christ, whom they crucified. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? That's the spirit working in the human heart right there, the conviction of sin that is beginning to spring forth into faith. You don't ask that question in earnest at least unless you are believing the facts. So they're believing that what Peter said is true, it fits, it makes sense. This is the Spirit of God doing his regenerating work. 
leading to faith and as we'll see later in Acts chapter 16 with Lydia where the text says the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. That's what's happening here with this large crowd of people hearing Peter speak. They believe the facts. Many of them do. Everything Peter said is true. But now just so you know believing the facts is not saving faith yet. People are mistaken when they think that I believe the facts so I'm saved. Um, There are people that actually teach that. But when they ask what shall we do Peter doesn't say well if you believe the facts you've already done it. Go on home folks. We'll let you know what's up later. Thanks for listening. No he, he thunders these great words when they ask what shall we do. Verse 38. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. That's been the message since John the Baptist. That's what he preached. In Mark's gospel, the first command out of Jesus' mouth is repent. Fundamentally, the idea of repentance is is making a turn. Uh, One has to change course. It's turning from sin to a savior. It's turning from idols to worship the one true God. It's turning from serving yourself to making Jesus the king of your life. That's why faith is always seen as more than just mental assent. You know what I mean? Just believing something might be true. I can believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he's Christ, that he's the creator of the universe, that he's the savior, but he's not my savior. See, that's where faith has to embrace the person. So I can believe it's true and reject him. But you're not a Christian until you come to grips with the place Christ has in your life. Is he the Lord that if you made him, is he the Lord of your heart? I guess that's the question. The second thing Peter says is to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So to be baptized in the name of means based on his authority and who he is. To be baptized into him, to place yourself under him, under his authority. Now baptism, the act of baptism doesn't save Over and over again the New Testament teaches that salvation is by faith alone. But baptism is an expression of salvation and it's a public declaration and Peter is telling them to do it. In fact in the next sermon in chapter 3 verse 19 Peter doesn't even mention baptism which kind of helps us focus on what the real issue is here. There he says in chapter 3 verse 19 repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So forgiveness is tied to repentance there and that's true here as well. Your sins being wiped away is about repentance and returning to God. It's making that turn. It's a heart matter. It's not a water matter. It's a heart matter. In fact the Greek word for um, can just as literally here be translated uh, because of or in reference to or something like that. Get baptized because of your repentance and being forgiven for that for in Christ because you repented. But it's a very good and a very clear way to profess your faith in Jesus as Lord to be baptized and it should be done. It was the normal New Testament practice not to wait. So the day you believed you usually got baptized. So um, your baptism was tied to your experience of your salvation. But to get baptized upon the profession of one's faith is, is a key thing and the, and the faith is in Christ as Lord and Christ as the Savior. So baptism pictures salvation. You're dying to self, you're rising to newness of life, you're washed and then you enter this new life in Christ. So repent, get baptized and then the third thing Peter says is a promise. 
He offers a promise for those who do turn to Christ. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is what binds the new covenant community together. So he's inviting them to become a part of this new community, this covenant community, the church. And that is happening because the Spirit will come into them. The Spirit is quite different in his new covenant ministry than in the Old Testament. He indwells. He lives with us. He's in us. He gives gifts, but actually the greatest gift is that he's part of us. He, he joins himself to us. All who embrace Jesus receive the Holy Spirit. Look carefully at verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord God shall call to himself. So you would be the Jewish people and then their children, the children of Abraham. Far off in the New Testament means Gentiles. So Peter's already referring to Gentile conversion here. Paul really clearly uses the phrase far off in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 or verse 17 to speak of the Gentiles and that is certainly the meaning of it here. It's not about physical distance. The Jews present here at Pentecost were from all over the place. But the Gentiles are far off from God. That's the whole reason they're called that. It's not how far away they are. They're far off spiritually. They have no godly lineage. They have no relationship history with God or any real conscious knowledge of the true God. So for Peter to say it's for all, all who are far off, is just monumental. It speaks to one of the great themes of the book of Acts. God's redemption is going global. All who believe will receive the Spirit. And the Spirit unites all of us into one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit you were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. That is the heart of the unity of the Christian community. So it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 uh, with the covenant God made with Abraham. In, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that promise is repeated in Genesis 22 when God tells Abraham, in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Jesus was that seed. So all peoples are being brought into his kingdom. And I think brought is the right word here. Did you notice the end of verse 39? Peter talks about all, all people, but then he says, as many as are the Lord our God shall call to himself. So there is a limit and the limit is to those God calls to himself. Those who come are called but they'll be Jews and Gentiles. They'll be slaves and free. They'll include all kinds of people from all over the world. So God is the savior of those he calls to himself. All right, let's finish this out then. So Luke doesn't tell us the rest of Peter's message. This is the part you have to know what we just talked about. But in verse 40 he sums up Peter's exhortation and then he tells us what actually happened on the day of Pentecost. Verse 40. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them be saved from this perverse generation. And then verse 41 those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So the church went from 120 people to 3,120 people in one day. So 3,000 people turned to Christ. 3,000 people got baptized or thereabouts that much. And that would be an astounding success in anybody's mind. What a beginning. I mean it's absolutely amazing. God was certainly moving in a gracious way on that day. 
And so the seeds of the gospel quickly bring in this huge harvest, this significant harvest. The church is born. Whether they realized it was the church yet or not or understood that, that's what's happening. But sadly, for the nation of Israel, the chapters that follow this do not see a national turning. There is not a national repentance of Israel. 3,000 people sounds like a lot of people, but not amongst a population numbering in the millions. And people that study this stuff estimate that there were anywhere between two and a half to eight million people that were Jewish in the first century. And we will see as the story unfolds resistance, rejection, and persecution from Israel's leaders and from Jewish communities and synagogues all over the Roman Empire. They're going to have a lot of opportunities though to hear the truth and God will choose amazingly God will choose their most violent hand of persecution as his greatest missionary. Paul is a prime example of God calling those whom he chooses to save. But if we picked up the book of Acts fresh never knowing anything about it and we're just reading along not knowing what happened and we get to chapter 9 and then all of a sudden this violent persecutor becomes a believer that would be an amazing story it's an amazing event that happens the whole history shifts from Peter to Paul when that happens and all that says all I'm saying about that is God calls whom he will and he uses who he chooses to use so the church is founded And next week we will look at what the first Christian community looked like. That's important to do because we should be like that too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a wonderful message that Peter gave. His masterful use of the scriptures, which I'm sure Jesus taught him during those 40 days they spent together. But uh, what an amazing thing for a simple man, a fisherman, discipled for three years but still kind of stumbling around to suddenly just get up and give such an incredible message. We know it was the Spirit that filled his heart to do that. And Father, we just pray that we would be repentive people, that we would not just believe with our minds, but believe unto salvation, believe with our hearts that Jesus is our King, our Lord, our Savior. We place ourselves in him. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, next time we'll talk about the church, the early church.